This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. This week, we sat down with Vicky Knott of Crux OCM. I love this episode for a lot of reasons. One being that female founders that we've talked to are just badass and are completely crushing it. Second is, Colin and I have spent most of our careers in upstream, as most of you know, so this was a great opportunity to learn a little bit more about how cutting-edge technology can be applied to midstream. Uh, But really quickly, before we get into the episode, as many of you know, one of the largest lease operating expenses is typically going to be electricity. The sad thing is it's really hard to know whether the power company is charging you too much, especially during those summer months. On top of that, most power companies are small co-ops. They don't really offer you a whole lot of support. If you have listened to episode 38, you know Pumpjack Power is trying to change that. They're the first and only retail electricity provider designed to exclusively serve the oil and gas industry. That means across upstream, midstream, and downstream. So now for the first time ever, small and mid-sized operators can purchase power directly in the wholesale market, just like the super majors do. What I like about Pumpjack Power, first and foremost, is the people. Ryan Knuckles and Waylon Johnson not only have an extensive oil and gas power experience, but they're truly great guys. But what I like is that they also offer risk mitigation tools to help customers minimize congestion charges, and they work directly with utilities on power installation development to bring projects online as quickly as possible. So if you have wells in Texas and you want to save 20 to 40% on power or have a new project you need to get online as soon as possible, reach out to them at their website at www.pumpjackpower.com or you can simply click the link in the description below. What is going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode. We're in the new studio, even though it is not complete whatsoever. Yeah, we got some chairs and a table and we have our old microphones, but we're making it work. It's pretty bare bones, but we're here. And we're sitting up really straight to get close super, to the Super, super straight. So we have Vicky from, <laughs> it's Crux OCM, and I feel bad for her because we got these new headsets, and they're actually like broadcaster NFL headsets. You might have seen me post a picture on Twitter of them. I feel like an NFL analyst when I'm wearing it. You're but pretty much John Madden. I am. I'm John Madden. But you can kick back in your chair, relax, and we don't have them set up yet. So the way that our chair, chairs are configured, we're having to sit up really straight to reach the microphones on the table. So Vicky. I apologize, but thank you for being on the show. It's good to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So So, we met like, what, six months ago, and you told me everything about the company, and I said, stop, don't tell me anything else, (laughs) and I tried to forget everything. So what do you guys do? Remind me. So we have built software for autonomous control room operations for major oil and gas assets. So if you think of like pilots in planes, they have autopilots. Yeah. Major oil and gas control rooms do not have that. Um, they've got some some automation solutions, but uh, but nothing that gives them um, full autonomous control uh, of these major assets. So, yeah. So our, our background, like I come from, um, you know, major uh, pipeline company, worked in the control room, uh, in the field commissioning. Uh, my co-founder is a PhD in advanced control. And uh, we saw this as a, as a significant gap in the industry. 
Interesting. So let me start bare bones. What is a control room? Oh, that's a good one. I have no idea. Okay. I'm, I'm assuming this is midstream, obviously. Midstream. What we found is they're 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 in downstream. They're in upstream. Um, so control rooms like your uh, your central nervous system for for these assets. So um, pipelines. You know, you think of a major pipeline. Um, it might have anywhere from one, two, three, twenty pump stations. Mm-hmm. Um, you have someone sitting in an office, looks kind of like NASA, big screens, and they're operating. Um, you know, changing pressure set points, sending commands to maintain maximum flow uh, and utilization of these assets. So gas plants also have uh, control rooms. So do refineries, um, offshore platforms, um, most any major facility. Okay, that was a lot. So obviously I come from an upstream background. So Mm -hmm. you say control rooms. Same here. So explain like we're five. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Come and act down. Um, Think of like, okay, so, so another, yeah, like, Homer Simpson. Um, <laughs> now it makes sense. Yeah. I just got the mental. Yeah. There's, there's that meme. There's some, yeah. some type of meme. He's sitting, he's sitting at the uh, control room at panel. The control he's got all the screens. Exactly. And I wish we had the, the cameras rolling for this one so we could insert that uh, image so everyone could, <laughs> could see. So, okay. So let's, let's back up into your story a little bit because you gave us a little bit of background about you and your co-founder. So first off, when did you guys start this company? When did you bridge off and, and start running uh, Crux OCM? Two and a half years ago. So about April of 2017. Okay. And before that, what, what, let's start at point of inception, you know, from you, your time into the midstream career, how did you get in? Um, how did you kind of arrive to where you guys are at today? I mean, obviously it sounds like you were in midstream and you saw some of these issues, you know, where, um, control rooms could be automated, but let's back up and kind of go through your career and progress through it. Cool. Yeah. So, um, Canadian. <laughs> We're Spending, out in Canada. Uh, well, living in Calgary right now. So, oh, okay. you know, Canada's Houston. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm a chemical engineer, uh, you know, did that cause liked math and science, I guess. <laughs> and then, uh, got into oil and gas cause that seemed to be the job that paid the most. Um, so I moved to Calgary from the East coast of Canada and, uh, yeah, I started working for natural gas distribution. That was pretty fun. Um, thought oil pipelines would be even more fun. Um, so, so moved into uh, in, yeah one of North America's biggest uh, oil pipeline companies. Um, was there for about five years. I spent eight months training as a control room operator uh, for the the third longest pipeline in the world, actually, um, and then started uh, commissioning in the field. Um, also worked with the Department of Transportation, FIMSA's uh, regulations around these assets as well. So, so pretty familiar with that. So you spent eight years as a control room operator. Eight months. Oh, eight months. Yeah, Sorry. training. I was okay. an engineer, so they didn't wouldn't let me actually get fully certified because there was no value to that. Yeah. Um, but I was the only engineer that ever talked them into letting me train. So I actually sat on the console for eight months. Okay. Operating. And so is this when you kind of started seeing like, hey no one really needs to be sitting here doing this. This can all be autonomous. People still need to sit there. Cause if you think of like a plane, like a commercial plane, yeah. you still want a pilot, but you also really want autopilot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so did that not exist before you guys, or are you guys doing it differently than the industry? It doesn't exist. doesn't exist. So this is entirely new. This is a major step change yeah. for, uh, I guess the midstream industry. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like um, we, you know, we started doing some more homework on it when we started the company. And not only is it not in midstream, it's not in refining, it's not in um, LNG. Like it's. Do you think that was because the technology wasn't there, or I mean, I imagine that people had to have thought like, we can't be the only line of defense. You know, what if somebody has a heart attack and they die, and the whole control system just goes to crap, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think the technology wasn't there or, or what no. do you think the reason that it didn't exist was? Um, I think the technology has is there. Um, I think it's gotten a lot better. Um, and, and in terms of the safety constraints on these assets, like hard programmed into the, the field level are all the safety constraints. So um, the way it's been done is procedures, checklists, and rules of thumb, uh, really rigorous human training programs and qualification programs. I, I think there was a, an element of this is the way it's always been done. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're definitely thinking about it uh, in a different way. And I think with, you know, the, the digital transformation agenda, uh, people are open to thinking about it that way now. So at the point of inception, so you're there as a, as a, as a controller essentially for, for eight months. Is that when you get the idea or you kind of sit on it for a while? You're thinking about it, figuring out what you're going to do. What was your next move? Yep. So next move then was, um, Hey, Roger. So this my now co-founder. Um, you know what? Uh, what do you think of this? Um, so a little bit of background on Roger and, and why why he's kind of key to this. Um, so he actually has four papers co-authored with uh, North America's biggest pipeline company. Um, he uh, has been consulting for pipeline companies for about 18 years. His algorithms are in thousands of sites across North America. I, I've been commissioning his algorithms um, at pump stations. How did you and Roger meet? Was, was he just a contractor with the company that you were working with? Yep. He okay. was consulting there. And I was like, who is this guy? And <laughs> why is he everywhere but nowhere? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, asked specifically if I could meet him and learn more about it. Um, so, you know, through chemical engineering, I, I really liked control systems. Um, um, and so when, there's really very little um, sophisticated advanced control systems in midstream. So when I heard that he was working on that, I wanted to meet him um, and learn more about it. So so I kind of went to him. I was like, okay, Roger, you know, this seems to be something that, that there's a potential gap. You know, control room operators almost take pride in the fact that there's no on button. And I'm just like, well, why is there not an on button? Couldn't there be an on button? Um, and so he started thinking about it. He's like, yeah, okay, maybe we can do it. Um, Roger and I had to do an assessment on a mega project. And we did an assessment on a mega project of whether or not, and this was to be like the longest pipeline in the world. And uh, we determined that one control room operator actually couldn't operate it at full rate. It's like, okay, well, if you can't operate it at full rate, then what? you need computers to help you. Yeah. And that's when we really started kind of synthesizing this, there's something here. So is that really y'all's value proposition is that you can be more efficient in the control room so that you can operate at full rate? Is that, is that where you guys come in? That's what I'm trying to figure out. you know, what's the benefit of quote unquote autopilot? Is that what it is for you guys? Yeah. So like our original thinking on it was, you know, pilots and planes, as I said, have autopilot, like, you know, the safety and the fatigue management. So 70% of safety incidents on pipelines are fatigue related. Fatigue is a function of long periods of sedentary um, combined with short bursts of really serious activity. Um, so we're like, okay, well, how can we help that for control room operators? Because having spent a lot of time there, I've got a soft spot for them. They're lovely people. <laughs> um, so how can we help make their lives better? Um, so that was the first real motivator. And then when we started looking at more of the ROIs and the dollars, um, you know, we're increasing the utilization of, of existing assets. So you're increasing the frequency that you're at max rates if your asset is at max rate. 
So, so by being more efficient, you're increasing potential, potentially increasing overall throughput. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so increasing. That was the that was the dummy version. I appreciate you breaking it down yeah. like that. I was just, I was just trying <laughs> Thank to. Thank you. Like we said, we are not uh, midstream or downstream guys. We are 100 percent upstream. So, <laughs> we're trying to. I'm, I'm genuinely interested in how all this works. So. How long did it take you guys from the time that you were like, hey, you and Roger were thrown on the idea to like, you're leaving the company. He's, I'm guessing, leaving whatever he's doing and you guys are founding Crux. That was, oh, like, oh yeah, the brainchild and how long that took. That was two to three years of us kind of figuring out like, is this something we could do? Um, Yeah. And then, and then we left and founded, founded Crux. So what did those two to three years look like? You guys getting together periodically working through, I'm sure version one or the original concept is probably much (laughs) different than what it is today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was a lot of whiteboards, like so many whiteboards (laughs) and like almost some ridiculous things too. Like I remember us having pictures of like trying to define variables and like thing one and thing two and thing one and thing two interact this way. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of that. Um, when we quit and, uh, you know, decided to kind of do it on our own, like Roger would come in every month. He and I would spend a week at my kitchen table and we did that for almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really familiar. I love hearing, <laughs> I love, I love when you look at all these cool technologies and they always, you know, they're always derived from a whiteboard. Like yeah. Think about all the advanced technologies that we have. They come from a simple whiteboard and you can't replace the whiteboard. There's no, no technology that's been able to that, do it. Nothing that replaces that. <laughs> that, that kind of collaboration in the early stages is so, 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 so important. Yep. Yeah. So I have a lot of questions, you know, first, did you guys, how did, are y'all bootstrapped? Did you take on funding to develop this? You know, what, what was y'all's path when you said, Hey, okay, I think we have something here. We've developed, you know, a minimal viable product for the technology. Did you guys, you know, try to go get a customer first? Did you go take funding? What was the, uh, what was the path? We bootstrapped and tried to get a customer first. Okay. Um, so Roger and I bootstrapped for about two years. Wow. Um, Part of that was like we're a couple of engineers out of the industry. I didn't know what venture capital was. Yeah. Like no concept of it. Um, people are like, oh, I'll raise a friends and family round. I'm like, no. Like I'm not asking my friends and family for money. <laughs> like <laughs> I find that to be like a terrible idea. It's already so much pressure when you take capital from investors. And then if you do an early seed round, friends and family, and you fail, it just makes it that much worse. Just, I mean, in the reality, the likelihood that your let's say startup in general will fail but particularly your first startup will fail we've had a lot of failures we haven't talked about all of them but we have a lot of them a I'd lot like more than we have those, successes <laughs> and yeah so yeah the, the risk it, is already wasn't it david ramsonwood uh on his show on here talked about and i think he raised two million dollars friends and family like, and failed oh. and he still has that guilt so he calls it his tuition and he pays them he pays them back for it um but yeah you get that like, look, if you take on venture capital and you fail, you know, that's that's a risk that the VC took. But if it's your friends and family, you know, if your dad took money out of his retirement account to fund it and you lost it, I just can't. I've heard, I've heard too many of those stories just go sour and you have yeah. either relationships go bad or there's there's some kind of bad blood or tension next Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas. So I agree. I think if you. <laughs> If you want to take friends and family money, do it at your own risk. I'd highly suggest go getting other people's money. That it also, in the event that it this also goes depends on how OPM. much money how much money yeah. your friends and family have if, if they're wealthy and can afford it. That's a different thing. But yeah. so you guys bootstrap yeah. for two years. You tried to get a customer. Then what happened? Uh, we didn't get one. You didn't get one. No. 
Um, yeah, no, like, uh, you know, Roger, a couple of engineers trying to get a customer was not an easy thing. Like, yeah. so you think that, you know, my, like how I just talked about it was too technical. Um, imagine me before some training on how to not to do that. <laughs> right. Like it's, it was bad. Yeah. So, so yeah, like, and, and, you know, because we were bootstrapped, um, you know, Roger and I put in about 20 K Canadian each. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was all we had. Yeah. And so we didn't have a budget to like come to Houston where customers are a little faster moving, a little more like we didn't have that budget. So we were just kind of knocking on doors in Calgary, you know, just not, 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 not a good scene. Um, so we were about to give up and throw in the towel and then we got accepted into, um, into a, a big accelerator program. Okay. Um, which accelerator? Uh, Techstars Energy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Small accelerator. I've heard of them before. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we got accepted in. So I, I got to ask, do you know Mead Lewis at Micro IQ? I think he was in Tech Stars. Microtech. Oh, Microtech. Sorry. Yeah. No, I don't. Okay, he's in Calgary too, isn't he? Oh, maybe I, I need so. a new friend. And he's in midstream. He does a uh, pipeline. Lead. Maybe we'll have to uh, introduce you guys. Yeah, yeah we, we still haven't got meat on the show. Local. Yeah, just local Canadians up there in the midstream business. I have to, <laughs> well, have to get of, you guys. A lot of pipelines in Canada. Yeah, but I, I believe that uh, he did something with Tech Stars too. That's what I was oh, asking. Cool. So cool. So you're good in experience Tech Stars. With Tech Stars though. Sorry. Oh, Techstars is incredible. Really? Oh, yeah. Like, awesome. we let's, let's talk about this a little bit sure. because we probably have listeners that aren't familiar with accelerators. And um, I know, you know, I've got a I got a phone call a while back um, from someone asking, hey, you should, you know, I look to do an accelerator. And so let's talk about, you know, what an accelerator is, um, how Techstars operates and, you know, just overall your your experience with them and how that went for you. Yeah, I'm going to give you the Techstars pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so, yeah, so Techstars is, uh, like, I think they're the they're in, like, 54 cities, mm-hmm. uh, and, or they have, like, 54 programs around the world. Um, the way that Techstars works is, you know, it's a competitive program to get accepted. They have, like, a famous little line on their website, it's harder to get into Techstars than Harvard. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure they get a lot of traction yeah. in that one. Um, so, yeah, so you, you get accepted in. It's a 13-week program. Um, it's a pressure cooker for 13 weeks, like, you'll figure something out or you'll you'll not exist as a company is kind of how it goes and, and they usually have some kind of it's it's a it's a full-time thing it's full-time. right it's a, and it's yeah. a structured curriculum it's like yeah. it's half work almost like half school it's a lot of mentorships a lot of workshops right yeah and and like you know personal bias there, there's a lot of different kinds of accelerators and and incubators and i think that that kind of like pressure cooker structured environment is much much better especially for first-time founders who don't don't really know where to start yeah um yeah so so it's full-time like we had to move to oslo norway like that was not an option like you're living in norway now um so we're there for three months um it was like 16 to 18 hour days six to seven days a week i think i was actually i think i got accepted there to be honest, I think Wellham got accepted a few oh, yeah, years exactly. ago. And yeah. I told you you're moving to Norway. And, and like, they were like, you're moving to Norway for three months. And I was like, nah, <laughs> my wife is not okay with that. I'm was sorry. that two years ago? That was probably, th- or yeah, like a year ago? About 20, two, I think it was about two years ago. 2018? I think so. Yeah, that's the same program that we did. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. We would have been in the same same cohort. Oh, we would have been besties. <laughs> I know, it would have been a small world. Just so Norwegian things. you go there, it's essentially a boot camp, right? Mm-hmm. You're there just for a week, 16, 18 hour days. Now, how does Techstars operate? Do they actually, at the end of the program, do they seed you guys with capital? Um, at the beginning of the program. At the beginning of the program. Yeah. Okay. So it's 120K. You're in the program. Here's 120K. 
Cool. And is that is that a flat um, is that a flat rate for all startups that get accepted, or do they differentiate by industry, or how does that work? Flat rate. So flat they rate. so six percent um, to just get to go into the program no matter what, um, and then you take the convertible note as a hundred k, and then the convertible note terms are you know based on your next round. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you get, you get a seed round plus you get the professional development, you know, like in your instance, you know, two engineers, very engineer minded, you're very good at what you do, but you need some of those other skills, you know, whether it's business development or, you know, did you even know what a convertible note was before you got into tech stars? No. Yeah. I read venture deals when we got into tech stars. Awesome. That's, that's, that's the <laughs> that's Bible a, for raising capital, right? Yeah. So venture deals by Brad Feld. If you guys want to check it out on Amazon. Uh, yeah, it, it is a must read, especially for first time founders. It, It'll give you the ABCs of venture capital and how all that works. And so that's been a major help to, to me as well. There's probably, a lot, there's probably a lot of stories like that. Yeah. Our founders have, you know, did you know what a convertible note was? No, I read venture deals. So it's definitely worth picking up. I got a copy of it somewhere. So what were some of the, I know he, he's hinted on a few things. What, in your words, were some of the biggest takeaways from, from that experience? Oh, the biggest takeaway was the, the, the messaging. Like, um, just, I had no concept that how I was explaining things made no sense to like 99% of the population. Mm -hmm. And that's a very hard thing to do, especially in an industry that is so engineering focused and, 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 and you lived it. And sometimes it's you intrinsically understand the value proposition, but now you have to explain it to people who don't know anything possibly about oil and gas. And Mm -hmm. now you've got to break it down super simple terms and then hopefully raise money on it. Right. And get yeah. customers. So you yeah. have multiple personas you have to, to kind of appeal to. Yeah. And like learning what all those different personas was and like, and, yeah. and you know, for us, like we, when we talk to control room operators, like I speak their language. Um, mm-hmm. so like to the one point of like, has anyone thought of this before? I had a control room operator look at me and they were like, I thought about this. I just know how to build it. <laughs> and so like we speak their language so well, but then their boss and their boss's boss and then investors, like we did not speak their language at all. Yeah, absolutely. So you go to the Techstars program, you're there for a few months. Um, sounds like you had a great experience in Norway, learned a lot. Then you and Roger come back. <laughs> and what is, what's, what's the next step? Cause you guys still don't have a customer yet. So uh, we did have a customer. You did have a customer. Point, yeah. so okay. So you had a, a customer going into, into no, Techstars? We got or? A, a customer in Techstars. So oh, we got our cool. first proof of concept pilot at that point. Very cool. Um, so it was a full build. Uh, so, so going, coming out of Techstars, like a big revelation for us was we were really pipeline focused. Mm-hmm. Coming, going through Techstars, we realized that our market's significantly bigger than, than we thought it was. So understanding like, oh, that control room could also use this and that control room could also use this. Um, and even like, okay, upstream could even use this and just yeah. in different variations. So that was a huge revelation for us. Um, so coming out of Techstars, uh, a bunch of our Techstars mentors, so you know, to the program you get paired with um, mentors. Um, a bunch of our Techstars mentors, um, it was really cool. They were like, I was like, okay, wait, I'd love to like continue this relationship. How do we do this? And they're like, about three of them were like, well, can I invest? And we're like, <laughs> you want to give us money? Yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. You just give me money. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, Roger, do we do we want to? Okay. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So we we raised like a, a pre seed round coming right out of TechStars, and then one of our investors, our angel investors, he was he's the former managing director of TechStars Berlin, and um and he was like, okay you guys are going to raise like a proper round of capital now. And Roger and like, oh, well, we know, we don't think we really need it. Like this customer's paying, like we'll be fine. He's like, no, 
just know <laughs> you're you're raising a proper round of capital now. Um, so then he coached like oh god like we had a thirty minute meeting every Friday, mm-hmm. and it was it was like boot camp again fundraising yeah. boot camp. Um, so we lined it up. We then um, yeah we started contacting VCs the first week of June once I had all the information together, and then in um, yeah the first week of August we had a term sheet. Very cool. So when you started reaching out to VCs, I mean, what type of VCs were they, you know, oil and gas uh, centric or were you guys looking at coastal VCs? You know, who, who are you targeting? We went global. Okay. Um, and that's one of the benefits of Techstars was that network. So Mm -hmm. we met VCs all over the world. Um, and some oil and gas, um, mostly not. Um, we did find that where we were such an early stage company in terms of traction, uh, the more generic VCs were, were much more interested in us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a, um, that's a repeating theme mm-hmm. on the show that if you're early stage, uh, pre-revenue that oil and gas or energy VCs as a yeah. whole typically aren't where but, you want to go. But back to what you said, because I've experienced the same thing and, and trying to raise capital from, you know, energy tech VCs is not always the easiest thing, right? Um, but I've also found it to be extremely challenging to go to Silicon Valley, go to New York, or go to any other generic investor mm-hmm. and have them, I guess the first issue is it is oil and gas, right? So you're the devil. So yeah. if you can get past that. And the second thing is, I don't understand this vertical whatsoever. Mm-hmm. If you can't convince me in like five minutes, then this is not going to be done. Yeah. How did you overcome that? Yeah, did y'all run into the issues where people didn't want to talk because you're an oil and gas? No. And so I'm wondering if some of that might be the female founder thing. Like they mm. got to give me a little bit of time. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I can pull that, pull, pull that card. <laughs> you should probably tell by my voice. Um, so, so yeah, no, I had, I didn't have that. Um, what I did find is I was co- coached very heavily on how to communicate the value prop within five minutes. And, and the big one being that planes have autopilot. Why don't these facilities, like these facilities supply our global energy, like you know, and pitching it and framing it in that way really resonated. Um, we did find the deep tech investors were way more into us. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as we started really lining up meetings with more deep tech investors, they were, they got it because they're in yeah. manufacturing, they're in um, heavy industry. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's funny you brought up the the point of being a um, uh, female founder. And I mean, even if you were to look at our previous episodes i mean it's disproportionate right to mm-hmm. to mill the females so that did it sounds like by the comment that you made that you used it as an advantage but you know if you look on twitter and other places um it always seems that female founders have a harder time raising capital did you find it to be a barrier or do you think that you were able to turn it into an advantage um i think i definitely turned it into advantage an advantage i i it was a barrier though, for sure. Um, so like, uh, you know, our angel investor, when he was prepping me for it, he's like, he's like, okay, so normally founders have to meet with like 50 VCs. He's like, I think you're going to need a hundred. And he was just super blunt about it. He's like, female founder, your company's weird (laughs) because he's not in oil and gas. So (laughs) he's like, this is a very interesting company. Um, yeah, we reached out to 83 VCs. So he was right. Wow. 83 VCs to get to the term sheet. That's, I mean, it really is a numbers game when you're raising capital. Um, and just the amount of effort it takes on y'all's part. I mean, Mm -hmm. imagine 
having 83 conversations or just even sending 83 emails that that would be such a pain it's ex- yeah it's extremely hard it, it becomes a full-time job i'm sure as you know at this point where it's very hard if you're especially if you're building either uh you know a product or you're trying to actually keep the operations of the business going in the early stages when you have no employees and then also trying to raise money on top of it I know it sounds like, oh, you just throw together a deck, reach out to a few people, get the money. Like everybody, everybody glosses over how long that process can be and how painful that process can be. So it takes away bandwidth and capacity from actually building the business too. Right. So that's frustrating. And it was only me and Roger. Yeah, (laughs) it was, it was hard. Yeah. So how many people are y'all up to now? Um, you brought Adam here with you today. He's he's sitting over there. So y'all are starting to stand up your Houston office. Hanging out on the phone over there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, we're, um, oh, how many have we signed now? I think we're at nine or 10. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, I don't know if you told us this. When did you get out of Techstars? What was the date that y'all came December out of December 2018. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was figuring about half a year. Um, you've been out of it and you guys have scaled up to 10 people. So I'm sure mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, bringing challenges along with itself, you know, being able to vet and qualify people and source them. I mean, uh, a bad hire can make or break a startup, right? So yeah. I'm sure that's, uh, that's tough also being able to scale up that many people in that amount of time. Yeah, it's been fast, like, because we closed the round in October 2019, like, we, we had to do, like, the reincorporation to Delaware and all that, so it took a bit of time, um, and then, yeah, we went from 2 to 10 since then. Wow. Yeah. Good for you guys. So, how is it in midstream, you know, I have a pretty good feel of adoption of technology and upstream, but midstream, when you're going to these companies, is there a lot of resistance to use new technology, um, or are they at least willing to hear you out and try to implement it how does how does that process usually we're still early on um again because it was just me and roger for so long um we didn't know the first thing about the commercial side so so we're building that functionality out so we're still early on in that um because of mine and roger's background it's cert like we we get a lot we can get the meetings uh, and and people will hear us out like that's something that um I know folks that don't have the background or have the the street cred yeah. probably can't get. Yeah. Um, we we can get meetings usually just about anywhere in the level of the organization. So since we can get those meetings and now that we've got a proper um, sales organization stood up, um, we're feeling confident that we should be able to to move through the process with some Very folks. Good. So how does it, you know, if you guys are coming into a control room, say on a uh, midstream pipeline asset, how does implementing a new technology work? Because, you know, they can't shut down operations, right, to switch over. So how does that, you know, how does that process actually work? Say that, yeah, hey, we love the concept, love the idea, but how do they actually implement it? And also, what are they, is it like, is it an actual physical item that is being installed or is it software or? Software. Okay. Software. So it's been software. Very nice. Okay. okay. Yeah. Just software. Um, so all of these uh, control rooms typically have like what's called a DCS or a SCADA system, so like yeah. a central control system. Um, we are a plug-in to that system. Um, in terms of how like we connect via like standard uh, industry connection, so APIs, OPC, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the way that we want to be running these we want to run first an offline pilot validate the uh validate the value proposition with folks okay like this is exactly what you'll get um then if they have a training simulator then we want to install on that so ensure that we're you know uh, working with their their control room operators that looks and feels how they want um you know they, they understand how to work it how to shut it down 
And then, then we put it into the live system. Um, the live systems uh, have a production and a testing mode. So you actually don't have to shut anything, any of the assets down. So you put it in the testing mode, validate it, and then you roll it over into production, um, which is what they do. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, to Jake's question, if it's hardware or software, I wouldn't have guessed software because I would figure there would have been so many uh, variations amongst uh, different control rooms that you wouldn't just be able to deploy it through a software. But it sounds like, you know, it's pretty standardized across all assets. So that makes it easy for you guys, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask, if it was hardware, I was going to ask, do you guys have to be built into the control system? Because a lot of times what we've seen with the adoption of technology and upstream, it can be slow, right? So an average sales cycle, if you're going to be realistic, is somewhere between a year to a year and a half. Mm-hmm. What we've seen just through our experiences and conversations and stuff is we've seen that if it's the, the same thing would take three to five years in midstream and in downstream, especially if it's something physical, because it usually has to be built into it. Like if it's a compressor, for example, it has to be specced into it from the beginning and you, you can't work with anything else other than that. But with it being software, it sounds like you guys can just come right in, install, move into production. You guys are great, right? Yeah, so so it definitely greatly decreases. And and the reason why we're able to take that approach is because we know what that infrastructure looks and feels like. So we've been there, we've worked with it. Um, so that was one of our first, I didn't even realize we are doing it, but one of our first design criteria was like, okay, how can we put this in without disrupting folks doing the awesome jobs that they're doing? Yeah. Right? So on your, on your test pilot that you have, what are the operators saying in the control rooms? I mean, they finding that it helps them perform their job better or are they resistant to it because it's something new and they don't want to change their day-to-day operations? Control room operators are not resistant to it. That's something that we get all the time. People are like, oh, the control room operators are going to hate this. And <laughs> and they're like, they're like, this is awesome. I don't have to press 800 buttons. I only have to press one. <laughs> yeah. They're like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, imagine that it makes their job way more enjoyable enjoyable um if they're not having to i mean think about it you know if you use the uh the comparison to a pilot on a plane i mean does a pilot want to really sit there at the controls for you know five six hours or 12 hours yeah 12 hours so i could see that um you know i think you have a winning i think a lot of times you know people look at what's the value proposition for the company itself Mm -hmm. And they don't think about the end user who actually is going to be using the product. And so I think that's very important. And if you can get everyone to where it's a value proposition for the operator, it's a value proposition for the company, then you're onto something. When we care about the operator, because like, I think, um, you know, in my experience having worked, because I, I also worked in pulp and paper, you know, on the floor, um, labor and whatnot. And like, so my experience is that you know, these folks are the front line to safety, efficiency, utilization, max throughput on your assets. Like, they need to be equipped with the best tools possible, and, yeah. and they're not right now. Yeah, absolutely. So before we wrap up the podcast, what are some of your goals for 2020 for the company? What are you guys really looking to attack? I mean, it sounds like you got a team building up and you have some resources. What are you guys looking to do in the next six to 12 months? We are looking for some more pilot partners, some awesome. folks who want to work with us and test it out and provide their input to make sure it's it's something that's providing their organizations with who, a lot of value. Who's your dream pilot partner? What does that persona look like? Oh, that is a midstream company. Okay. <laughs> um, a midstream early adopter who's excited. Something like a phrase like the future of autonomous control rooms or the future of control rooms. That's something that resonates with them and okay. that they're that they're chasing down. 
Very cool. And where can they find you if they listen to this and want to check you guys out? Do you have a website? Are you on LinkedIn? Where can they reach out? LinkedIn, you can find me, so Vicky Knott, on LinkedIn. Um, our website is www.cruxocm.com. You can also email me directly, Vicky at cruxocm.com, and that's V-I-C-K-I. Awesome. Vicky, thank you for coming on the show. We'll, uh, we'll include all the links to your website and LinkedIn in the show notes. So if you guys want to reach out to uh, Vicky and hear a little bit more about the technology, feel free to do so. Vicky, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for yeah, having thanks me. So. Okay, bye. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, like we've been mentioning the last few episodes, we have a new link in the podcast that makes it super easy to leave a rating and review, which helps us keep doing what we're doing. Uh, the link is ratethispodcast.com forward slash digital wildcatters. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.